Oh my God, we're live. Holy crap. How many time zones are we in? This is crazy. All right. I'm Ray Wong. I'm with my awesome co-host, co-founder, Vala Ashar, and our amazing producer, Elle. Um, we're going to introduce our guests really quickly. They're going to tell us where they're from and what they're going to be talking about. And we're going to go in reverse order. So I'm going to start with you, Gita. Where are we from? All right. Thanks. First of all, Ray, Vala, Elle, thanks so much for the opportunity to be on. Happy Friday, everybody. I am coming to you live from Miami, Florida, where we give the sunshine and COVID-19 away for free. Come and visit next year, maybe. Um, I am a rheumatologist by background. I'm the executive medical director at Salesforce and looking forward to talking all things digital and healthcare today. So thank you. All right. Mark, where are you calling in from? Yeah. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am calling in from Nairobi and I'm super excited to be here. Uh, Vala, it's good to be with you. Um, there's so much that uh, I want to thank you for and Ray and, and Al. We've all kind of talked before, but uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm founder of Impact Africa Network. Essentially, what we are is techn the technical term is a startup studio, but really what we are is a movement and a movement on a mission to ensure that uh, young, talented Africans can participate in the digital transformation of Africa as creators and owners. And so that's that's what we do. And hopefully we'll, we'll dive into how that works here in a little bit. Awesome. Excellent. And thanks for spending your evening with us. I know it's late there, but it's even later with Dipali. Where are we? <laughs> so where are you calling in from? Hi, I'm calling in from India, Mumbai. Uh, and thank you, Vala and Ray, for having me here. And lovely to meet you, Dr. G and uh, Mark. Um, and uh, I am the Chief Marketing Officer for IBM in India and South Asia. And today we're going to talk about what does marketing mean in B2B versus B2C kind of climates because I have transitioned from being a B2C marketer into a B2B marketer now. Wow. All right, this is going to be cool. All right, we're going to go live soon. Let's do the countdown. L, all, all right. yours. Three, two, one. Uh, hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag DisruptTV, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, one of my favorite books. He's regularly on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNN Bloomberg. He's everywhere, and in my humble opinion, he's one of the top futures to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Very, very kind. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashar. Not only is he the uh, chief digital evangelist at Salesforce, the more important thing is he's an author, he's a speaker, he's the number one person followed by CIOs, CMOs, and CEOs in social media, and also most inspirational. I think uh, there's a new vote and poll out, but he doesn't know about that yet. So coming out about what he does. So thanks for being on the show, and thanks for you know, co-hosting um, with me for so long. Um, but more importantly, you've got to check out the blog on ZDNet. So he's been writing a lot there. All the articles show up here. You get the insightful action. You get the videos, of course, and it all shows it there. But this is not about us. This is about <laughs> our cool guests. And we have someone calling in like it's late at night. So who do we have? Who's our first guest? You want to talk about cool. We're talking one of the coolest executives in the world in terms of marketing. Dipali Nair is CMO of IBM in India and South Asia. Dipali was awarded the 2020 CMO of the Year Award by Economic Times for Most Promising Tech Marketeers. 
Tapal was also named the 50 most influential Indian woman by Impact three years, 2018, 19, and 20. She's also a 2020 CMO Transformation Award recipient by Pitch CMO and the top 30 CMOs uh, listed by India IAMMAI. Uh, Dapala teaches business school and mentors women-led startups and accelerators. Amazing work. She serves on several boards. Please follow her on Twitter at D-E-E-P-A-L-I-N-A-A-I-R. And check out her amazing new podcast on leadership, what it takes to be a good human being and a good leader and a good manager. Amazing podcast. Welcome, Dapali, to the Shrop TV. Thank you, Vala. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and Ray, great to be here. Hey, thank no, you so thank you for being here, and it's uh, it's an honor to meet you. You're one of the top marketers in India, and you've done everything from insurance to like luxury resorts to selling cooking oil to mobile phones. I mean, this is crazy. And now you're in enterprise tech, right? And when you think about technology, it's you know we're going from B to C to B to B. Um, what's the difference? And what are some of the things that people can learn? Like they can bring from the B to C side to B to B, and of course you know, and the, and the other way around that you've learned along the way as you're doing B2B. Uh, it's interesting that you ask. I think, uh, you know, if you remain in the domain of, uh, you know, applying frameworks and don't uh, apply the direct learnings from one domain to uh, the other, you can learn a lot. For example, I think what uh, B2C marketers are great at is, you know, uh, looking at the consumer cohorts, uh, doing consumer inciting, uh, developing uh, communication, packaging, pricing to serve the needs of those cohorts. They're great at that. And that's what, you know, I think we ought to learn from them. And I think B2B marketers are great at doing data-driven marketing, uh, running digital marketing, running performance marketing. Uh, you know, the concepts of uh, e-commerce uh, is something that you learn from B2B marketers. And I think the most wonderful thing that's happening in this space is uh, that B2B marketers are really looking at small segments and running them in a programmatic fashion now which has happened only in the last four or five years when digital marketing has really, really taken off. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that personalization at scale and so many lessons on the B2C side that's being adopted from uh, business to business. And at the end of the day, people relate, build relationships with people. So it's important to humanize the business. And that's what you're doing. My observation of your work is you're a great storyteller, uh, great interviewer. I mean, you really get really uh, soulful, insightful content from folks that uh, appear on your podcast. You're active on social, so you're accessible. You know, to, talk, to be able to communicate with a CMO of a revered brand like IBM, I see you responding and connecting with everybody, regardless of their title or company. So you're very generous with your time. You're a great storyteller. Are these the qualities that are required now for a modern CMO for, uh, you know, a Fortune 100 company? Do you need to be social? Do you need to be accessible? Do you need to be a storyteller? What are some of the recipes of success you can share with our audience? Thank you very much, Vala, for saying that. But I see all these qualities in you, too. You are a great storyteller and accessible and, you know, so active on social. Uh, but I think apart from this, there are two, three other things that one must keep in mind. One, I think you've got to believe this today that you will be obsolete in three years time. So your current role and your current skills will be obsolete. So I think you have to constantly learn. So therefore, you need to be an infinite learner. I think that's one quality that you need to bring to the table in any profession that you're in, but especially in marketing. I think the second quality is that you need to have learning agility. You need to learn quickly 
and you need to learn frameworks from one place and apply to apply them to another one industry to another from home to work work to home i think uh, that's what uh, one needs to do and the last thing is very important you need to have client centricity as your value system your personal value system i think that's when uh, you're able to be human uh, you know to the people whether i'm interviewing them on a podcast or uh, you know whether i am uh, talking to them on social or whether i'm generous with my time all the qualities that you uh, explained is because i think they're human centric and we are uh, client centric I love the term infinite learner. That's awesome. That, I'm going to use that. I, that. That's a great, you know, that's that's I a great mindset. I won't take credit for it. It came out of a podcast that Reid Hoffman runs. Uh, the <laughs> Infinite Learner podcast. Yeah, his masterclass podcast. Oh, very cool. Yes. You know, yeah, everything to, to Polly, everything is borrowed. I'm, I'm, you know, everything is. <laughs> yeah. that's it's awesome. all about how you retell the story. I think that's, that's right. What the, that's, that's, right. That's, yes. that's right. In the oh, right absolutely. context, right cultural context, and the mm. and, and the and the right conversational well tone. I mean, it changes well everything. Well so yeah, but hey, you know, you're, you're... Just... oh, go Sorry. ahead. You know, it's not just about retelling the story. It's also. I think in our work and professions, it's about reapplying the concepts and frameworks. Sorry, Ray, you were saying something and I interrupted. Well said. Well said. Oh no, no, I agree with you. And and it's not just it's it's getting the frameworks right and the context, helping people understand, you know, the reason for that story, the purpose behind it. I mean, it all comes into play. So. Yeah. So, hey, I was asking you, really thinking about you're bringing all these different types of people from different teams and different domains. How does that work and how do you bring them into a cultural environment and, and share that type of culture you're talking about? Uh, you know, I think people uh, want to be led is what I believe. People want to be mm. given goals, uh, you know, is what I believe. And uh, people, uh, you know, want to be appreciated. If you keep these three things in mind, I think everything kind of works in terms of, you know, changing cultures. And I have you know, two stories to tell you here, uh, two anecdotes to share. When I used to work for an insurance company, I used to run the sales and business there, and I used to be responsible for the P&L. Uh, and uh, I learned that what is valuable for business is really cost per sale, you know, uh, not any of the metrics. Ultimately, what will matter to the board and the CEO is cost per sale, right? And when I arrived at the holiday example, the marketing matrix that the team used to work with was, you know, cost per lead. And one changed that, one changed that to bring that cost per sale matrix here also. So that's where I used a concept and a framework from an insurance company to a holiday company. Did not copy paste, but use that framework. And I did that not just for the marketing team, I did that for the marketing agencies and partners and vendors also, right? And that meant an overhaul of not just the marketing systems, but also the sales systems, because there was influence that marketing team used for the sales team to also do better. You know, so that's when you create a culture of efficacy, culture of a goal setting, culture of what gets measured gets done, you know, as I believe. Mm. You know, that's one thing and you're, you know, that's important. And the and second you're basically thing, you know, looking at the whole ecosystem and the whole value chain behind marketing. And, and Liz Miller saying the same thing. It's this infinite loop of evolution. So, yeah, well put. Thank you. Uh, and the second thing in terms of building cultures, I think you need to look at the employees that you have in your team, your team members also as a customer cohort. Now, if you were to look at them and, you know, when I arrived at IBM, I found that everybody wanted to be appreciated. That was my consumer insight for my team. And they want to be, of course, when they come to work, we all assume that they want to be appreciated for work. But if you really look at the human insight behind it, we all want to be appreciated as people, as a person. Mm -hmm. 
And to me, I took it one step further and I said, why not celebrate everyone? And we, uh, you know, then took the insight further to say that the one day in a year when uh, unanimously everybody around you celebrates you is your birthday. And, you know, we did a unique birthday program, which is totally personalized. We develop caricatures. We get the team to find out what you like, what your hobbies are. Uh, and, you know, we celebrate you on social media, on email. We make the day really special. And, you know, we appreciate you that day by making you, you know, feel special on things that you're so good nice. at. You know, uh, this is very well regarded within IBM. And that sets the tone, uh, you know, for the whole team to realize that everybody needs to be appreciated. And I think that's the other insight, which is culture changing, uh, you know, in a team. If there is time, I want to tell one more, uh, you know. Please, uh, yeah. Here. Please, yeah. please, yeah. Yeah, you know, another interesting thing that I learned from one of the IBM leaders is a concept called positive gossip, you know, and I know that everybody, 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 thinks, everybody thinks gossip is negative, but it's positive gossip, you know, and that's really actually what we all know of, which is storytelling, right? So tell the story about a person's greatness when that person is not around, and that's I positive. That. I love you know? that. And that builds a culture in the team about positive feedback, about appreciation, and people, it creates a lot of warmth, uh, you know, inside it. But do this appreciation for the right things. It's not flattery. It is for genuine things that those people have done and do it in a story format. Gossip is always in a story format and therefore positive gossip. I think that works for the team. That's awesome. That's awesome. I hope there's positive gossip about Ray and I after the show. That would be great. But <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you know, so the, the, the team in India under your leadership has won two global awards for successive quarters within AB, IBM. And these are difficult times, you know, certainly since February of this year in the U.S., and I suspect that's the same time frame in India, you know, we're all under uh, new uh, experiences. We're all under stress, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, unfortunately in the U.S., you know, some uh, were nearing 200,000 uh, lives lost due to the pandemic. How do you keep, how do you personally keep that morale of optimism, hope, knowing that we're going to hopefully get out of this uh, pandemic even stronger, even better, even more positioned for success. Can you share how you inspire your team? Because it's working. Your team specifically is continuously getting re recognized for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you for uh, uh, saying us. I think IBM is a great place and Michelle Peluso, our uh, global CMO and her leadership team, uh, you know, they recognize, uh, you know, the work that they're doing. But I think two things. One is every little tip and trick that you are reading on social media these days, do it. I think if they tell you that check in with the team every day, do it. You know, if they say do virtual coffee, please do it. If they say, you know, have children coming into your calls, please do it. I think the more interaction that we have with our teams, the more they feel uh, that, uh, you know, they, they are here and we are supporting them and they are supporting us. I think both is very important. I think second, Vala and Ray, what, uh, you know, we've done is that as leaders, we don't mind sharing our vulnerabilities. It's extremely important for the teams to recognize that I can have a bad day too or that I can feel disappointed on some days or that I could be needing a pep up and a zest of energy. And, you know, seeing the fact that I'm human and I'm not all powerful also makes them realize that their problems, you know, their families are also important and I have the same kind of issues. So that's on, you know, the pandemic time and the COVID time. But I think culture cannot be built overnight. I think mm. some of the other things that we did earlier have also ensured that we are a successful team. And those are that, you know, risk-taking ability in my team is appreciated. Mm. New ideas are appreciated. 
you know, small failures, uh, you know, are all right. Uh, you know, nobody uh, gets penalized for failures, you know, small failures, you know, as long as you're measuring and learning, you know, from what you're doing. And those are great cultures to have. Um, and in IBM, the other thing that we do is we plan for the future. We plan for technology to come. So, for example, uh, you know, when COVID struck, uh, we were already ready for doing 100% virtual events because we were saying, okay, three to four years later, these things are going to come. Let's start experimenting with these things, right? We One just top. accelerated our learning, you know, uh, uh, when COVID came. So, uh, you know, in short, you know, all the things that I spoke about, you know, which is building a culture of failure, risk-taking, et cetera, very, very entrepreneur mindset, you know, and we encourage that, you know, in IBM. I especially, especially encourage that. And of course, coupled with that, I have to take a little bit of national pride here in India. You know, uh, we are very resourceful set of people in India. They, you know, there's something called the Jugar Innovation. Jugat, right? yes. Yes, and, 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 and I think Indian teams, marketing teams will specialize in that. Not just my team. I think all of Indian marketing teams will do that. So I think a little bit of that magic dust also helps. Awesome. You know, awesome. My good friend Navi Raju wrote a book on that. Uh, yes. Innovation. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yes. I have it. You yeah. have the book? Oh, yeah. I have the book. Yeah, you got innovation. One of the fun ones. So, yeah. yeah. So, hey, when we look at the future of marketing, we only got a few minutes here left, but when we look at the future of marketing, how do we build these new relationships when everything's a virtual call? Can we change that? Have you thought through this? Like, does the enterprise sales motion change? I think the enterprise sales motion does change, you know, uh, in terms of the rituals that it has. It may not change at the center of understanding that we've got to appreciate clients' problems. We've got to, uh, you know, be there and be in their corner. Uh, we've got to solve their future problems. We've got to make them think, uh, you know, about how the world of future is going to look like because, you know, we are the pioneers. We, uh, we are the ones who know how technology works. But, you know, we've got to think about the business. So at the heart of it, that doesn't change. But the motions of how you approach the client, how programmatically you run relationship after that virtual call is over, how do you mm -hmm. stay in touch on social media or through the one-on-one -on -one channels that you have, which could be email or WhatsApp or, you know, uh, various other methodologies. I think that changes. But I think, you know, the beauty in all this is really that I think all of us are learning and we're trying to see what a salesperson could deliver earlier. Can we deliver this programmatically? Can we help the salesperson do this in a programmatic fashion? I think that's the bit, uh, you know, that is changing. And, you know, the second thing is, Nobody owns an idea. I think we can learn from everybody. That is extremely important. Uh, and, uh, you know, so so learn. Uh, I mean, copy what you can from somewhere else. And it needn't be from, uh, you know, uh, tech uh, companies, you know. So, for example, the brief that sometimes I give to my team is get inspired from the world of gaming. Look how they yeah. engage, you know, uh, the young um, millennials and Gen Zs who are known to be, uh, you know, having a, a, a attention span of a goldfish. I said, uh, so let's just learn from them. I think that's the bit that marketers need to do. This is awesome. This is my last question. And by the way, Ray, when do we have guests that show up midnight and have the energy and passion of the folly? Imagine if this was like AM with the folly. Imagine us at midnight. <laughs> you're amazing. You're amazing. Uh, you're right. I'm about, I'm about 10% of today at, at midnight. Um, so, so, so my last question, uh, you know, given the fact that we went from a centralized to a decentralized only, digital only construct for the last several months, and we may be in this next normal uh, for many months, certainly uh, potentially years to come. The importance of technology, how important is it for CMOs to have their best friend be the CIO 
and really building a relationship where, this, where you're putting the science into the art and the art into the science of marketing by leveraging you know, the technologists in your company to really determine the art of the possible, especially in this next normal. I uh, totally agree with you, Wala, but I also say this. I think the marketers need to also learn and understand technology better. So they need to be, uh, you know, techno marketing, you know, tech marketers or whatever it is that, you know, terms that we want to use. But I think uh, they need to learn technology. Second is it's not just the CIO. Of course, the CIO's team and the CTO's team needs to be your best friends. But I think there is a lot of the tech ecosystem uh, that helps you. And I have found actually that some of the ecosystem that you have for marketing teams, which is the vendors, the partners, they've also really pivoted very quickly. You know, yes. we cannot deliver without them. And, yes. you know, uh, and, and Ray, we were talking, you know, backstage about some of the work that you're doing, right? Uh, if, the, if the ecosystem had not pivoted very quickly with us, you know, we may not have been able to service or, or reach out to our clients that quickly. So I have to give appreciation to them also. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Well said. This is awesome. Thank you so much for this insight. We are here at DePolinaire, uh, CMO of IBM India and South Asia. You can follow her at D-E-E-P-A-L-I-N-A-A-I-R. So get all the double A's. So thanks a lot for being on the show. You guys are awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, DePolinaire. Amazing, amazing, amazing enthusiasm, amazing storyteller. And, you know, we try to get guests to join us very late in their evening. And so that's no exception with our next guest, our first guest from India, our second guest from Africa. We have Mark Karaki, founder and CEO of Impact Africa uh, Network, a nonprofit startup studio in Nairobi with a mission to ensure young, talented Africans have a chance to participate in a digital transformation of Africa as creators and owners, not just consumers of digital and technology, creators and owners. After 15 years in Silicon Valley, Mark chose to repatriate back to Africa to immerse himself in the economic development challenge. Impact Africa has a 10-10-10 goal. By 2030, Mark will talk about 10 companies that create 100,000 new jobs and have a combined value of $10 billion. So Mark and his Impact Africa Network has a, have very bold, very impactful uh, goals and mission. June of this year, Mark sat down and wrote an article uh, titled Last Black Man Standing in San Francisco, and the article went viral. CEO of LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner, Aaron Levy, CEO of Box, and many other CEOs of incredibly successful companies all talked about this incredible uh, article that Mark wrote, and we can talk about that. Uh, Jeff, uh, uh, CEO of uh, LinkedIn, said, at a time when I'm trying to listen and learn and how to become more effective ally, enormously grateful for the incredible writers like Mark for sharing their stories, so vulnerability and honesty and helping cultivate greater empathy and compassion. He's created a movement. Impact Afri uh, Africa Network is not a startup, it's a movement. And uh, you've got to follow him to learn about this movement on Twitter at K-A-R-A-K-E-M-A-R-K, Karaki Mark. Welcome, Mark, to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me, guys. Super excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thank you, sir. Thank yeah, you. We are so happy to have you. That was an amazing article. It definitely hit and touched on every aspect of, you know, being in Silicon Valley and being in Silicon Valley in different types of scenarios and conditions. But you've been everywhere. I mean, you were at Oracle, you were at Google, you were at Threat Matrix, right? What was the experience like when you got to the Valley? And then, of course, when you left to go do this in Nairobi? 
Yeah, um, it was, uh, how can I put it? It was just a learning vortex. And yeah, I, I guess I, I like to summarize my experience in the Valley as, as if I was to boil it down to what I learned in the Valley is just, the world is a malleable place and you can actually change the world. And that's what Silicon Valley really represents to the rest of the world and, and to itself, I'm sure. Um, the other thing that I took away from Silicon Valley was the power and speed of, of digital innovation. I mean, it's like nothing else we've probably seen in, the, in human history in terms of the pace at which you can shift and, and, and mold the reality that you live in. Uh, and the other thing I like to that is this concept of <clears throat> we're living in the techpreneur age. Technology entrepreneurs are the emperors of our time. Hmm. And, and that's just the reality. And, and if you don't mind, I can kind of give you a couple of stories why I believe that is so yeah, true. No, I mean, please, definitely. It, it's, it's kind of the reality we live in. So I'll talk about the two Marks. And the first one is actually your boss, Bala, Mark Benioff. The first time I had about Salesforce was sometime in 2004. I was, in, and, you know, I was young in my career and I had about this company called Salesforce. And every talking head and expert was saying, yeah, this cloud thing is not gonna go anywhere. Who's gonna put their data into the cloud and so on and so forth. <laughs> so I was listening to people who knew more than I did. And, but you know, I watched this company over the years go from milestone to milestone to milestone. And in 14 years, by the time I was leaving the Bay Area, Salesforce came to replace, to be emblematic of what I'm talking about, the power and speed of digital innovation to transform the landscape in record time. In, in my lifetime, in my short lifetime in the Bay Area, they were building the tallest skyscraper in the one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world, going from doubt to dominance, in front of my eyes. And so that's, I mean, Mark Benioff is, and, and, and then you put on top of that, what Mark Benioff has become in that time is a cultural icon. He's an influencer in the, in the technology space. He has become somebody who can move the needle in so many different ways, in front of my eyes, in my, in my own limited lifetime. And the other one is, the other Mark is obviously the Facebook guy, right? He, he entered the Bay Area. One has a C, me. one's a K, you know, you'll, you'll <laughs> Okay. But, he, he, you know, he found me there. And, you know, I remember uh, watching that company. I remember stalking Facebook when they had their offices on a university at, at Stanford campus, right, somewhere over there. Because I knew you, you once you have been in the Bay Area, you've seen a couple of rocket ships taking off. You're trying to be, get on one of those things. So you can actually take that ride. <laughs> And I, I remember seeing this, this thing just go from strength to strength to strength. And in the same time frame, or even lesser time, this person goes to influence Western democracy, global democracy. And he is kind of the most influential person right now, one of the most influential persons on the planet. And so what did I take away from Silicon Valley? The world is completely a malleable place. Mm. And digital transformation is like nothing. If you've not been in the Bay Area, you really don't get it. <laughs> right. And so for me, uh, we're living in the techpreneur age. They're the emperors of our time. And that is what I'm looking to do here to ensure that our young Africans do not miss out on the biggest transformational opportunity of our time to shift the narrative and, 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 and write a new future. No, absolutely. And according to Bill Gates, Africa's potential is going to massively shock the world in terms of talent, hunger, the desire to do. But you have to have someone like yourself who witnessed rocket ships, you were on a rocket ship yourself to really, uh, you know, they say a river without boundaries is a puddle. You have to be the boundary guiding these <laughs> entrepreneurs to think bigger, to think that there, there, there is limitless potential. Like the policy said, infinite learning, there's infinite growth opportunity as long as you have infinite growth mindset. 
So I want to ask, as someone who was on a rocket ship, as someone who's at the heart of it, just putting a dent in the universe, as late Steve Jobs would say, why did you leave? What was that day, moment, experience, conversation? What was it that you said, you know what? I'm going to leave the epicenter of innovation and I'm going to create a movement in a continent that is uh, lagging in terms of potential accomplishments. <clears throat> wow. Okay. A number of different things. One is kind of this concept of uh, my TED talk. Uh, I think all of us look for, for purpose in life. Uh, we look for that unique thumbprint that you want to put into the world that speaks to your, to, your, to your soul and who you are. And for me, you know, I found over time as I was studying myself and trying to figure out what, what motivates me, it was really about unleashing human potential. And with a focus more on youth development and driving system, systemic change with, through innovation and entrepreneurship. Because to me, it's always about how can we unlock human potential to achieve. I love to see people thrive and, 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 and uh, pursue their potential. So it was, that, that was kind of like my nexus. I love working with young people. I loved innovation and entrepreneurship and shifting reality to, to, in, to enable the, the betterment of the human experience. And the other thing too, that deep inside me, I always wanted to change the African narrative because mm. the story about Africa, you guys know what it is, but I grew up here. And I knew that genius, I, for me, I lived it. Genius is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And so I always knew that Africa's time one day will come, hopefully in my lifetime. And for me, this whole notion of digital innovation and so on and so forth and entrepreneurship, I, I, I had, once I understood the power, I was like, this could be the thing that could change things for, for us. And so... So what made me make the move? I understood who I was. I was kind of growing into that. I wanted to do something in that nexus, if you will. The other one is just really personal dissatisfaction. You talked about the article that I wrote. Uh, being black in the Bay Area, man, it was tough. I mean, career limitations. I mean, I, at many companies that I was, I was the only black person there. I didn't see people ahead of me who looked like me, who I would feel comfortable approaching, or who would feel comfortable taking the risk on me. You know, we have this transaction, whether we like it or not, you know, people look and say, okay, is this a risk I can take, you know, enabling this, this person or whatever. So the career limit, I'd, I'd hit the zenith of what I could do as an individual contributor. And the, the, the next level was leadership. Nobody was, there, wasn't, there was nobody who could take a, a risk on somebody like me because I just didn't look the part. Mm -hmm. And so I, I could feel that I was hemmed in from a career perspective. The other one was social ostracization, right? I just, I mean, basically I was, a lone man on an island, right? And, 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 and it was just hard. I mean, you don't have people who kind of, you can, I mean, it smiles and work and so on and so forth and coworkers are great, but that only goes so far. Yeah. You know, you need people who can, who can have the same, <laughs> the same inside jokes with you, if you will, right? You just need people who understand you, right? Human beings are social animals. And when we're removed from that, it just messes up with our psychology. And the other one was really even more intense than uh, around the same concept, but it was really the psychological assault of seeing people who look like me, especially when the cell phone came out, the, the smartphone came out, we started seeing a drumbeat of young black males being assassinated at the hands of, of the police. And, you know, I had developed this stoic mentality that I'm just going to, you know, play my part, do my best, and because I had a family to take care of, and I was going to focus on my career, and I wasn't going to let the outside things kind of uh, impinge on me. And so 
the drumbeat of seeing young black men assassinated by, by, by police and killed by police and, 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 and nothing happening was just like, oh my God, this time something's gonna happen, nothing. This time something's gonna happen, nothing. And you know, you, your heart breaks, but you continue doing what you're doing. But the one that really got me was the Philando Castile uh, 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 killing. And you know, I remember that morning waking up to my, um, as we wake up in the morning and you look at your, uh, your mobile phone, you're taking in the world news of the world. And I saw this uh, video <clears throat> of a person's life ebbing away, sitting on the passenger side of a car and his girlfriend trying to talk to calm the policeman down. And to me, I couldn't, it, it seemed like a movie. I, 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 it, there was just no way this could be real, but slowly dawned on me that I'm actually watching a real thing. That morning, as I as I made my way through my morning routine going to work, and I got into uh, into the, the public transport in San Francisco, I was in a I was in a daze. I was in a shocked daze, and I was looking at the faces of the people in that bus trying to find some recognition. Anybody in that bus who was going through the same anguish that I was, or we could just exchange a glance and be like, yeah, you know, it's crazy. But all of them were so nonplussed and so blasé. They were living in a, and I was like, do these people get the same internet that I do? And so I made, I make it to work that day and we had a sales meeting that morning. Uh, and, you know, I was just in this stupor and I was hoping somebody would bring it up. I was, because I wasn't gonna bring it up because as a black person, you internalize that your job is not to make white people uncomfortable, especially in a work situation, because you never know where I could go. And so I'm just sitting in this meeting and nobody's talking about it. People are talking about baseball and you know, the deal they're working on and, and minute after, turns into 10 minutes and turns into the whole meeting is over. And it's like, what, am I, what's, what, what world am I in right now? And I remember making my way back to my desk. I was broken. And I realized at that time that, oh my goodness, I'm on my own, for real. Like, and I have to get into this day and <laughs> perform at the same level as my coworkers. And I had a call uh, 10 minutes after that and I had to perform. And so for me, that was kind of the backdrop of my life. And so I was at the point, I was at a crossroads. I was looking for my, 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 my Ikigai. I was looking for my TED talk. This was roiling in my life. And then I made a trip to Kenya around the same time and I uncovered a problem where there was an entrepreneur who was trying to build a company. Who was, he, had, he had built a business, but couldn't get funding. And I was like, oh my goodness, people keep talking about Africa being the next big thing. But if you cannot enable the most, the best of our entrepreneurs who, who are working hard, that's what I was used to in the Bay Area. How are we gonna do this? How is this gonna happen? So I remember flying back home and I was thinking, how do you solve this problem? To me, it was obvious it's, it's a venture fund, a seed state venture fund. And I'm like, okay, let me make my way and, and do that. And started doing the research to actually get into that move. And when I, when I started saying, okay, who's funding and what's happening on the ground here in Nairobi, and I'm, I'm in the Bay Area right now doing that research, I'm not ready to make the move at that point, Vala. I'm a person in my 40s. I'm in the process of buying a, a, a condo in West Oakland, a place that I've been eyeing for a long time. My kids and I have been going to look at that place as it's being built. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to make any crazy moves. But when I, when I, when I, when I peel the onion and I see who's getting funded, it blows my mind. It looks exactly like Silicon Valley. And all of a sudden I start talking to entrepreneurs, local entrepreneurs, black entrepreneurs, and they're like, yeah, there's this whole narrative about how folks had found out that Africa has this social entrepreneurship thing. And a lot of kids had moved over there from the West after university, after college. And all of a sudden they see opportunities. And to them, it's really obvious because they've been exposed to a very modern economy. They see all these gaps and they take a run at them and kudos to them. That's what you should do when you see opportunity to take a run at it. 
But the reality was the pattern recognition from the people who are funding, because all the venture money is still from the West, right? Because we don't have that type of uh, uh, experience, expertise, comfortability with that type of asset class. And so they were finding each other. The money was finding people who look like Mark Zuckerberg, right? And they were the ones who were getting permission to build the digital future of Africa. And when I saw that, and when I understood that if you project this 10 years out, what we were walking right into is digital colonization of Africa, <laughs> I mean, it, it was over. But it wasn't like I just made the decision. It was still a very excruciating, like, sure. how am I going to do this? Right. And so it took me six months of mental uh, of research, working my, my, my butt off to just validate whether this was the right move to make. And I remember when I spent a month here in February of 2018 to make the decision. And I remember making the decision. And I remember the last time I, f I flew out of SFO. It's a place that I, the Bay Area is still home to me in some sense, because that's where I became a man. That's where I have my kids were born. And, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm still Bay Area. But, uh, but I'm Africa. And what I learned in the Bay Area, here's what I'm doing. I'm taking the best of what I learned in the Bay Area and inserting it in this place because the opportunity to shift the narrative is too huge that we can't afford to take any chances and miss out on that. And that's why I made the move. Wow. Mark and I, uh, Mark, uh, Ray and I have been doing this show for four years. We've interviewed over 630 guests. I don't think at any segment have I been so angry and disappointed uh, in terms of how our society behaves. Uh, it's a bittersweet story, bitter because Silicon Valley lost an incredible bright mind and talent, sweet because you're creating a movement uh, and, and your continent and your neighborhoods and your community are gonna benefit from it. Thank you for sharing a very vulnerable, very heartfelt, it's not often a guest comes on our show and says I was a broken man. Uh, so I appreciate your radical transparency. Ray, go ahead, please. No, I was going to say it's really important, right? Uh, in a lot of areas, back to your point, where talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity isn't. Um, it's also not just the capital, right, that's available. It is the mentorship network. And one of the things that you have done is done a good job of putting together a team and a board, uh, in, you know, innovation fellows that can connect with other folks that are in the business community. Um, how hard is it to do that? Because you're coming with these wild Silicon Valley, like American ideas, and people are like, no, 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 I, I don't want to do that. Right? I don't want to stick out and know, as you as you answer as, as you answer that also tell us how people can support impact africa so how are you doing it and how can we help yeah, yeah I and, mean, and oh, i think it's really important cool. because because that network right you want to make sure founders have mentors you want to make sure that the money knows that you know there's businesses on the other end to actually build out the rest of the business and the, the business model and the monetization models that are out there so, so yes yeah, share a little bit about that story and, and of course what vala said how do we how can people help yeah. Um, so how do we do it? So if you if you think about um, the problems that we face in over here are quite different, uh, similar and quite different than in the Bay Area. So what we have, what we need to do is we need to be able to develop people and build capacity while we're also developing innovation and building startups. And so what we have created is a three pillar strategy, which is around developing innovation leaders. And what does that actually mean? Right. What that means is we, we, we need to shift mindsets while at the same time imparting skill sets. The best way I can describe this is if you think about the, the average kid coming out of Stanford, their mindset that they've been in, inserted into them is go change the world. <laughs> if you think about the average person coming out of university here, they're just hoping to get a job. But at the same time, everybody's talking about become an innovator, become an entrepreneur. You haven't prepared me for this. 
I'm not ready for this world. And so what we realize, what I realize is, you know what? We need to work with the raw talent that is that that is still has the opportunity to actually learn and grow and change and quickly move, insert in them that mindset that the world is a malleable place. And how do you do that? You involve them in the process of creating things that matter. So every single thing you will see about Impact Africa is developed with our innovation fellows. What we do is we provide them, uh, we provide college graduate college grads with a 12-month innovation fellowship. And it works like an internship, but it's really a rapid learning environment where we're actually working on real scalable opportunities. We are bold in terms of what we believe we can do, because if they can do it in, in what Y Combinator, even, genius is even in super, let's go for it. And from what I learned in the Bay Area, it's this rigorous systematic way in terms of how you interrogate ideas and how you move them into the market. That is was to me. That is just like uh, a you know, huge you, you deal. You reminded me of something. You reminded me of something that's really important, and I think people do forget that in the valley, it's a culture of abundance. Everywhere else, it's a culture of scarcity. scarcity. And to get into the mindset of the culture of abundance, really, you have to break out your imagination. Um, I mean, I had an opportunity to join a uh, a links company uh, in the ni early '90s that Stanford kids kind of put together, and you know, I asked them, you know, how much was the pay, and they said, oh, it's forty thousand dollars. I was making a hundred thousand dollars in a consulting firm. Like, no, 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 you should come, right? You know, and I'm like, how could I explain this to my mom? Like, I'm going to take a forty thousand dollar job at this company called Yahoo. Like, who would do that? <laughs> so, so, so you, you you don't know that. I don't have any of other people to tell me that it's okay. I came from the East Coast. Everything is structured. Listen, you go to this as a, as a first gen, as a first gen immigrant, I had I have the same. Uh, I had the same mentality. Absolutely, get a job. My parents get a job. It, it wasn't about get a job at a known company. A known yes, company. Yes. Known company. Yes. So, so someone that, that your mom can tell another mom that it's yeah, your other yeah, auntie yeah, going to yeah, be yeah, proud yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so the challenge we have is that, but it's also it's multiplied. Because there are not that many opportunities, right? And so essentially what we need to do is we need to develop people at a rapid pace, but we also need to put product into the market that actually gets traction. We need to do two things at the same time. And people ask me all the time, like, the first thing people hear are Startup Studio, uh, why are you guys a nonprofit? Because the work we're doing at this stage, at this level of capacity <laughs> building, the zero to one work, doesn't work for venture. Venture is looking for growth. Venture is looking for a clear, you know, we have to build people. We have to get Vala to come and do a, 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 a fireside chat with our people to shift their mindset. The VC is going to say, like, why are we doing this? <laughs> Let's go to work. So, <laughs> so, so that's like, and the third thing that we do, so we develop innovation leaders, we launch startups, and we build community. Because the community is what's going to actually enable number one and number two to happen. So when Vala comes and does a, a, a fireside chat, when Jeff Wiener at LinkedIn comes and does a fireside chat, he shifts the mindset. And when they can fund us, provide us the capital to actually do the work that we need to do at the pace that we need to do it so that we can create those early, those fundable startups, those fundable ideas. And, you know, you, you have to work with the conditions you have on the ground and the reality on the ground and the culture you have on the ground and the opportunity that you have on the ground. You have to put the menu together that works for you. So to answer your question, was it, was it hard? It was not easy. It was mostly mental than anything else because I understand the culture. And I, I iterated a couple of things. At first, I thought it was going to be a venture fund, but I realized, oh, my goodness, a lot of the entrepreneurs here, 
are not ready to, they, they don't understand that move, that you're going to invest money in me, are you going to take over my company, blah, blah, blah. It's not a thing that's been done before. And, and the other thing too, it's like, uh, so, so I realized that we need to do something different. So what we do, let me just kind of summarize this for you and, and how people can support. What we do is, uh, is really flip the model on, if you look at a big tech company like Salesforce or Google or any of those guys, they build one product and then they start, then they build a startup studio. Then they go and build other products or do acquisition and they build that. We flip the model. We want to actually build from the bottom up and we're taking a run at different ideas, but we have to fund it in some way. Those big companies fund it with their revenue, but they bring talent in to build the next product or that type of stuff. We don't have that yet. We, you know, so we can't wait to get that company that will do that. We just need to build capacity, take a run at ideas and, 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 and try and make it happen. So you're the other side of yeah. a two-sided network. You're the other side of the two-sided network. You're the supply side trying to actually match their demand, right? And instead of doing it with the money, you're doing it with the ideas, the blood, the sweat, the guts, right? All the like emotion behind creating a startup. And, and once you create that network, I mean, that's the other side of the network. That's what makes this really right. exciting. Right, right. And so, so the way people can support is we have a couple of ways that, uh, that we've identified. There's one, one called the micro donation program. And this is where anybody in the world can support us for like as little as $30 a month, right? And recently, Jeff Wiener, he, he's, we actually have a campaign right, running right now, executive chairman at LinkedIn, saw my article, he put that out there and we're like, oh my God, this is our opportunity. So we jumped on that and I kind of wrote a follow-up to that article. And for the first time, we saw growth in our micro donations thing. We're in Africa. Nobody knows who we are. I mean, like, you know, but for $30 a month, people saw that story and they were like, oh, my goodness, this is great. And so they, we saw growth in that. What was exciting was what has emerged out of that is the mentor network of people with domain expertise who can dive in and help us work on projects and, and de-risk a lot of things for us, impart that knowledge in that rapid pace. That mental network is invaluable. So for $30 a month, you can join our micro donations program. You can go to impactafrica.network slash support. It's, it's, on my, it's on the screen over there. And, and join this movement. It's just It works just like Netflix. It's a subscription program for $30 a month, allows us to continue doing this work. Now, if you're, if you're, if, the other thing that we look for is, is individuals who have built companies individuals who have leadership experience, who can come and also provide us that, again, that mindset shift, that thing. But they can also write bigger checks. And so we have a, a fundraising campaign called the 100 Founders Challenge. And this is really built around individuals like Stuart Butterfield at Slack and Aaron Levy and people of that nature who can write a four, five, six figure check, uh, but they can also bring that belief, that credibility, that that know-how, those connections, other resources. So the Founders Challenge is, is a great way for uh, successful entrepreneurs and business leaders who you know can can do more to, to give more and can be part of our fireside chat conversation. My dream is to have people like Mark Benioff come and speak to our people because that changes people immediately. The mind cannot go back. And once it's stretched, like this guy is talking to, like well, who? This is unbelievable. We just had Craig McClick, uh, Craig uh, Craig Newmark uh, of of, yeah. Craig, of Craigslist last week, well, we, and this well, we is think, this we think is Mark what watches the show, so we, we hope he hears your message here. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but no, but thank you so much for being on the show. Um, yeah. we're so sorry we're out of time, but we're here with Mark Karake, founder and CEO of Impact Africa, and you can follow him on Twitter at K A R A K E Mark, and of course uh, check out the ability to actually donate and watch him activate movements across Africa. Thanks a lot for being thank on the show. Thank you, guys. Mark, you're amazing. Thank you so much for an amazing story.
Ray, we got to do our show at night. It seems like if you're joining us at 10 at night or uh, Dr. G and I are on the same time zone. So uh, it's that uh, with replays. I yeah, mean. yeah. <laughs> We'd be dead without this thing. Uh, what, what an honor. This is our cleanup hitter spot where we bring like an awesome person to hit a grand slam. And uh, this is so it's 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 an honor and a privilege for us to have Dr. Gita Nair, Executive Medical Director at Salesforce, as our final guest. Uh, Dr. G, we're friends, so I get a chance to call uh, Dr. Nair, Dr. G. Dr. G is a nationally recognized leader in healthcare, information technology, physician executive, a frequent sought after public speaker, and an author with unique perspective that bridges clinical medicine, business, communication, and digital health. Dr. G currently serves as executive medical director for Salesforce, connecting the North American enterprise health systems to the technologies that empower hospitals, enhance the work of physicians, and improve patient care. Previously, Dr. G served as Chief Medical Officer for Greenway Health, Chief Medical Information Officer at AT&T, and Federal Group Health. So incredible business acumen, a healthcare practitioner. She's one of the smartest people at Salesforce. Follow Dr. G, uh, Dr. Nair, on Twitter at G Nair, G-N-A-Y-Y, AR. Welcome, Dr. G, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much, Balan Ray. I have to kick it off with a rumor that I heard. Ooh. I heard that your show was awesome. And that guy, Mark, oh my God, super inspiring. Both amazing guests. Very humbled to be following both of them. Just wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> our pleasure. Our pleasure. That was positive gossip. Patient positive gossip. <laughs> See, I told you, Ray, Dr. G is super smart. Well. But I expected more from you, Ray. <laughs> I love That's it. awesome. Well, hey, you know, look, you, you've you've been on national TV talking about COVID nineteen before you were at Salesforce, and people have been watching segments from you about this all over the country. I mean, where are we? Right, we're six months in, right? And how does healthcare change? Like, what are some of the big pieces that you thought this would never happen, and then suddenly it occurred because of where we are with COVID nineteen? Sure. So, you know, I think that the, there are so many things that have happened, right? You guys told me I have like 10 minutes. I don't know if we can cover it. No, all. no, no, we can be on. Please, please. Don't, <laughs> I'll do my best. No, but the, yeah, you, you have a little fact, bit more than that. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, you know, the reality is that we've realized how fragile our healthcare system is, and we've realized how fragile our individual health is, right? So what you're seeing now is people are not going to the emergency room, right? Surprise, surprise, all the things we thought were emergencies are now it's like, gosh, should I go online? Should I, should I find Dr. G? Should I find someone else to help me out with this before running to the ER, right? By the way, not something new in healthcare. We're all appreciating it now in this pandemic, but having been on call in the ER when, it, when it's snowing, when there's a hurricane, Guess what? Nobody comes to the ER when there's a crisis in America unless they really need the ER, right? Unless you're really having a heart attack, really having a stroke, you're home, right? You're like, man, you know, I should pick up my medication and man, I really should listen to my doctor. Let me make that appointment. So this is not new, but it is really refreshing in some ways to see that people are saying, how do I get healthcare in my home? or in the office, which is probably the right place and the right cost point for it, right? And actually do better, right? And actually do better because now it's more accessible. So what we're seeing is all of that. And, and obviously the consumer now is saying, gosh, my health is important. So I'm gonna dial into it, right? I'm gonna find out who's my doctor. I'm gonna make sure I have health insurance or figure out what that looks like for me and my family. And hey, if CVS has the flu shot, I'm gonna go there, 
because it's easier than getting an appointment with me, frankly, at this point with, with everything that's going on. So all of that's happening, which we've been wanting to happen in healthcare, it just happened like this because of the pandemic. So I'm making time. I'm making good time. So I I, I have two, I have two questions. Uh, The first one is, you know, Salesforce is awesome, but you were kind of a superstar. Uh, You you know, you're kind of a pretty awesome, accomplished healthcare expert, CMIO at AT AT&T. How did you, how did you choose to join Salesforce? Uh, You know, what motivated you to join Salesforce? And then uh, follow up question is uh, following up race question, long-term impact of COVID. We'd love to have your expert point of view in terms of, what does this mean for us as we end 2020 and go into 2021 and beyond? Sure. So I really appreciate the question. Thank you, Vala. That's you know very humbling. So I've been watching Disrupt TV and following Vala long before Vala knew who I was. So he is my big brother, whether he likes it or not. Uh, I'm, I'm going to hold him to that. So you know it's an inspiring place when you see people like Vala, yourself, Ray, Mark Benioff. I mean, a company that actually you know, has a mission, which is not just to build a business, but also has a role in the community, right? I'm a physician, I'm a doc. I'm, I'm all about, you know, purpose, passion. And I personally believe that empowering people to be healthy is critical to life because without health, you have nothing else, right? We're seeing that more than ever today. You know, as far as where, um, and I'm representative also of one of a much bigger team. So we have about 20 clinicians at Salesforce. We, I'm, I'm not the only doc, I'm not the only nurse, and I certainly hope I'm also not the last. We have so much work to do. I think we've learned that in this pandemic. And we've also learned that there is such a big space for digital engagement. So that brings me to your second question, which is where is healthcare going? Healthcare has been struggling in North America for a very long time, specifically in the US, right? We've all appreciated how fragile it is. And so many health systems were just not set up for success. Our entire system was not set up for this kind of crisis. Unfortunately, it won't be our last one. So this is our opportunity to sort of, you know, get it together. Um, you know, Nijim just put out an article this, this uh, July that basically said, look, this is not 1918, healthcare leader. You have an opportunity that did not exist in 19, 1918. It is called technology. Start oh you. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, the clip, the clipboard's not enough. Oh, no, right, exactly. And you know, we've we've got a lot to learn. So we're so we're learning that there are things we can do in the home, uh, remote patient monitoring, telemedicine. But there's also a lot that we're figuring out, right? So fraud, waste, and abuse still a huge issue in healthcare. We're going to have to figure that out on this journey. We also have to figure out how to keep humanity in healthcare, right? The worst thing I could do to a patient, guys, is is this, right? So I think we have a really terrible chronic autoimmune disease called lupus. And it may or may not affect every organ system in your body. You got that? We got to keep the humanity. The new digital bedside matter. You gotta get, everyone's yeah. got to have a rotating yeah. fan. Dr. G also recently wrote an article that said healthcare companies need to be digital. And in that, it was about humanizing. It was about connecting on different channels. It was about becoming more empathetic and accessible. So you're absolutely, you're absolutely right in, in terms of the, this impact will hopefully accelerate the healthcare industry's sense of urgency in terms of really caring more about you know the patient experience. So, so we got a massive distortion, right? You know, you know, I have a public health background. We got a massive distortion in cases, right? So, so COVID cases. So I'm a big fan of Ray already. He picked the right doctor, not just the right woman, but the right doctor. 
can't, can't complain at all. Uh, the, so you look at you look at COVID nineteen cases are super high, right? I mean, if you look at an average year, six hundred eighty thousand, you know, heart attacks, right? And we got COVID coming up, you know, about two hundred thousand, and then a whole bunch of things disappeared, right? I mean, and so so people are like, oh, okay, did, did those chronic diseases go away? Um, you know, are other folks coming back in? Do we worsen the situation because they couldn't access to get to healthcare? Like, are we in the middle of a healthcare crisis and we don't know it, or are these things just going to just taper off and, and we'll be okay? Like, what, what's your opinion on that? So you know, we've been in a crisis, right? Like, if you talk to any frontline worker, we've been in a healthcare crisis. The day when when you walk into the emergency room, any emergency room in this country, any given day, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, post. It's a war, right? There's a reason we talk about front lines and back lines. We use the language of war in our profession. <laughs> I mean, that's not new. And it's because it feels like a war, right? And we are fighting disease every day. And unfortunately, I wish, right? I wish lupus went away. I wish asthma went away, diabetes. Forget that. We've got COVID now. It doesn't work like that, right? Ray, you know this. Your, your wife probably complains a lot about this, right? And it actually is very hard to manage a patient with lupus, COVID-19 and diabetes. It's that much harder. And that's why My we- sister-in-law is in room and she is telling it's like so hard because you can't see them. You can't have the engagement. You can't really assess how they're doing on their HMP. There's not there, so. It's hard. And are we, we got to look at the hands. So now I'm like asking patients, so does that feel warm? On a scale of one to 10, what's that one? Is that a 10? Is that an eight? Before I just feel your hands and it's like, okay, I know this is RA. I know this is active. Boom, bada bing. Let's talk about treatment, wow. which is where I want to go as the doc, right? So these things are taking longer because we're having to get creative and, and guys, not everyone's that creative, right? None of us as physicians were trained to do a lot of this and none of our systems were created like this. And that's where this digital engagement piece comes in because the number one thing that patients will always say to me, doesn't matter what disease, doesn't matter what age, what gender, what ethnic background, doc, how do I call you? How do I get in touch with you? <laughs> When I have a question, when all my anxiety, you know, leaves me when I leave your office and then I got 10 questions I didn't ask you, how do I get to ask you? And so that's the digital engagement piece, right? Because maybe it's not me that has to answer the phone, but it's leveraging, you know, I say it's digital extenders. We have physician extenders, we have nurses, yeah, we have people who help the physician do their job. Digital extenders need to help us too. So when I know that you didn't pick up your medication or you do have a question, why can't you text me? And why can't that be a good experience? Because let me tell you in healthcare, the number one reason patients come back to you is because of how you make them feel, right? That's not a new adage. I don't, I want to No, no, it is. My wife's panel is totally full. I mean, yeah. and they're like, hey, I, I need my Rituxan and Humira, like uh, my Humira prescription. So, right, <laughs> That's in, why in, they're texting in, you. <laughs> in, this, uh, in this spirit of physici physician uh, extender uh, topic, uh, especially in big business, do big companies need to have a chief medical officer or a chief health officer? On their on their executive leadership team because it seems like you you wrote every healthcare in, uh, company needs to become digital but it seems like every digital company needs to think about health and safety of their stakeholders employees customers partners communities what are your thoughts about and I know our company has a chief medical officer chief health officer so what are your thoughts about companies really thinking about uh, having health as a top priority. Sure. So I, I think we're seeing that, right? And I, you know, I'm going to answer this actually in, in Mark's words, right? So he says, trust is now the currency of business. Mm -hmm. So it comes down to trust. If your employees cannot feel safe doing their job, yeah. they're not going to work at your company anymore, right? right? And if your customers can't feel safe 
getting your service or your product, they're not going to use it anymore. And they're going to find someone else that they trust. And, you know, whether it's the chief medical officer, chief health officer, listen, I don't think it's about titles. I think it's about purpose of the role. And absolutely someone in charge of employee health and well-being has to be at the table. Because when we look at the cost of healthcare, the productivity losses, they existed long before COVID. And now with folks working from home, many moms, especially a lot of women in business, women in medicine are really struggling with that, right? My eight year old is going to visit us at any moment. Yeah, you I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I like, oh, right, cameo you appearance. Future Dr. G, future Dr. G. <laughs> <laughs> so so one, one other question I have is, okay, you, you mentioned your daughter. Uh, we have fathers and mothers watching the show. We're all parents here. Any advice you can give to parents? My, my son started his school, first day of school yesterday. I got to tell you, there was a little bit of anxiety, all of us, including myself, uh, just having him go to, a, to school. They did a beautiful job. But any advice you have in terms of flu shots, school, where yeah. people can get some insights in terms of calming their anxiety and stress when they're thinking about their children going back to school? Sure. So I think like the conversations we've been having, safety first not just in the workplace, but also in the home. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're assessing your back to school situation, number one, talk to your doctor for your children, talk to your pediatrician, right? Unfortunately, the way things are happening, there's so much misinformation out there. It's hard to really make that decision right now as an individual family. And every family is different, right? Some kids have asthma, some have diabetes, some have family members who have chronic conditions or autoimmune diseases, and they have to not just make a decision for them, but who they might expose. So I would number one say, talk to your own doctor, assess your own health situation at home. Insurance is important. Listen, COVID-19 is a detrimental, serious disease. If something happens, make sure that you have coverage, you can handle it financially. Also figure out the logistics. If someone gets sick, how are you going to quarantine? Especially if it's a child, usually one parent, of course, has to take care of that child. So all of these things have to be kind of measured and then you make your decision there, there's always risk in life and in, in the world but i you know i like to think that we have different measures and and you as a family have to make that decision and absolutely get the flu shot if you didn't do it before please get it if you have an allergy to eggs don't get it talk to your doctor but, you know, it's, uh, yes, if you do have an allergy to eggs do not get that yes, yes. There, are, there are alternatives but again please talk to your doctor and it's, it's this is the time september we just got ours and, um, and then give your kids ice cream. I think be gentle on your kids too. Realize they're going through a lot. Um, my daughter kind of just had a, had a fit today and threw her computer. She was like, I got a hundred, I'm done with her spelling test. I'm like, nice. who is not over? Who is not over? <laughs> you know, her dad's like, why are you giving her a hard time? I mean, she just walked out of the That's awesome. <laughs> Pick your battles. I think we all pick our battles. Sage advice. Sage advice. That's awesome. So, hey, I'm going to ask you a question that a lot of people ask, and kind of like people would ask you on, on your normal TV show. Um, so where are we on the vaccine, right? We've got vaccines and we've got therapeutics. Explain the difference to folks, um, why, you know, what one does and what the other part does, and are we getting close? Sure. So one of the good things that have come out of the pandemic, I know we don't hear a lot about that, but there, there are some good things. And one is this, this how do we prevent Right? I think we've established that we don't want to get COVID-19 anybody, anyone, if you can prevent it. Right, And if you had it before, you don't want to get it again. Mm -hmm. So that's the importance of a vaccine. And we have tremendous vaccines historically, polio, uh, rubella, uh, the flu. Right, The reason we don't talk about these diseases is because vaccines have helped us prevent them. 
So the key here is, can we get a vaccine for COVID-19 and can we do it safely? And then can we get it to enough people so that we can all get off Zoom and have a party at your house, right? <laughs> hey, so, I want to go to Paula's house for a party. <laughs> so that's a vaccine, right? Therapeutics are therapy, treatment, right? So if you do unfortunately get COVID-19, how do you treat it, right? Like any other disease, if you get pneumonia, we, if you know if it's bacterial, we give you antibiotics, and then how do you bounce back? Sooner is better than two weeks at home. It's better than three weeks in the hospital. So how do we treat you and get you home? And we have some therapeutics for COVID-19. Again, a lot we're learning about in, in both the vaccine and the therapies that are some helpful and some not. And like with everything I just said, measured risk hmm. with the vaccine, with the therapeutics, as we're rolling this out and learning about this as a medical community, we're measuring, you know, and we just saw with AstraZeneca that they have already found in their data that the risk was too high and they had to pull and kind of pause their vaccine study, right? But there are many studies out there. We This is not new in the medical community, but we're just all our ears are perked up um, and, and as they should be. So we wanna make sure it's safe. The medical community but, needs to do their job. And but there's a big change though, but there's a big change in the uh, tr clinical trial process, right? In the past, waited for the end of each trial to begin the next. Yeah. Here, the government has actually made purchases to actually facilitate the ability to run parallel work streams, which is very different, right? It is very different. You know, I, I think in the end, we've got to really keep an eye towards the science, right? On this one, you got to listen to the medical community. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. Dr. Fauci's king, he's king <laughs> until there's no other king. Um, I trained under him, so I feel like I can say oh, that. Oh, awesome, awesome. Wow, <laughs> and the data will speak for itself. So, so Ray, you're right. And I, and I think that we can't hide it. I mean, we're seeing that, right? So my hope is right. that we do the right thing. Again, trust is important. It's unfortunate that many folks have been wary of vaccines long before COVID. And now with so much misinformation and miscommunication, it's happening again. The scientific community needs to keep everyone honest. The drug manufacturers need to do the same. I think we saw that also this week. So we've yep, got the pledge to they made it early in the week. Yep. That's yeah. right. And you can't skip. Here's the thing. Shocker. You can't go from mice to humans. Yeah. It's not going to work out. So I think the medical community knows this. And I really hope that we can convey that to the lay community. But number one person you're going to make this decision with over COVID-19 and whether you should get that vaccine, whatever it looks like, is your doctor. Everyone has an individual situation. And whatever the vaccine turns out to be, there's going to be some effect, some, some side effect, some caveat, some age group as with any medication. So you want to make sure you have a primary care physician, a pediatrician, if you have children, make the decision with your doctor, just like you do for any health decision in your family. Do not make it with CNN or Fox. Don't make it on Disrupt TV as much as I love it. Make it with your own physician who knows well, I thought there was an online AI tool that I could just my yeah. I mean, come on, what are you talking about? There isn't an app for that? There isn't an app for that? Yeah, there's that's, no app. <laughs> that's the app. Oh. Can you turn oh that fan speed higher? <laughs> doctor to tell you, not my fan. <laughs> oh, Dr. Speak G, to the fan. Speak to the you, fan. You, 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 you crushed it on this segment. God, so much great sage advice. Thank you so much. That's we are here terrific. with Dr. Gita Nayar, Executive Medical Director at Salesforce. You can figure out and track her on Twitter and get all interesting advice. G-N-A-Y-Y-A-R. And of course, catch her on her videos. You can see a lot of great videos of her in the past uh, with some great medical advice as well. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. And, you know, thanks a lot for the great advice. Very timely. Terrific advice. Thank you so much.
talk to you on Monday. You got it. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, guys. Wow, Ray. (laughs) An incredible guest from India, an incredible guest from Africa, an incredible guest from the U.S. (laughs) And uh, all of them just expanded my brain. You know, as uh, Dapali mentioned, infinite learning, I, I, I learned so much from her. Mark's story was just tugged at my heart, but I know he's going to put a dent in the universe uh, in a part of a world where we need more people like Mark. And uh, Dr. G is just like, she's a, she's like well, a rock, Mark's she's got a rock good star. Point. Like people are going to be talking about Mark's in Africa and they're going to be talking about that Mark. That Mark! <laughs> and we're going, to, we're going to say he was on our show in 2020. Exactly. Exactly. Mark, I'm going to, no pun intended, mark my calendar when, when the third Mark, uh, Mark Karaki was on our show. So anyway, uh, I you know we've gone a little bit over our time, but I just want to mention that next week we have Carl Golden, founder and CEO at Hint. I've got Hint water bottles all throughout my house. I've got Hint water bottles uh, everywhere. Yeah. But hey, breaking breaking news: yes. our second guest is actually Brian Fanzo. He's actually going to. All right, <laughs> awesome, awesome. I you know talk about a digital disruptor. That's awesome. And then we have Sinan Aral, author and director of MIT's uh, initiative on digital economy. So, uh, you know, we're going to have an incredible conversation there. So, you know, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. This show was out of this. This was episode 205. We have interviewed 628 guests in the last four years and change. And this show was uh, just incredible. So thank you to Polly, Mark, and Dr. G. You guys were incredible. Uh, Ray, closing remarks. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Just watch our Twitter feed. Watch our Twitter feed and watch for the cool stuff that's going on at CCE 2020. This is unlike any virtual event you'll ever experience. And I will promise you that. So see you guys around. Bye. Bye.